Good morning. How are we all doing today? <coughs> Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 19, <coughs> verses 1 through 11. There it reads, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, No one will spend the night in the, uh, no, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed hard against the man lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they were struck with blindness, the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great so that they were unable to find the door. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, and as we do so, let's reflect on this theme, biblical hospitality in the contemporary church. Holy One, it's once again that we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts, Lord, we are grateful for this occasion that brings us here. We are grateful for this opportunity to delve into your word. We are grateful for the chance to see again how old texts might have new meanings. Lord, as we come before you now, we ask for a fresh anointing of your spirit. May your spirit fall on me that it might teach your words to your people and on each and every person here that they may receive new insight that we might go forth to boldly proclaim the resurrected Christ in the midst of a world who needs to know him. Lord, at all points in time, we ask that we would always be found useful to you for Christ's sake. Amen. I am privileged and blessed and glad that I have this opportunity to stand here today. Alec, I want to say thank you for giving this invitation to be the first August and Virginia Davis speaker. That's pretty cool. It's like historic. It is uh, an honor to be with you, and I'm looking forward to each of these moments. I had fun a little bit this morning wrestling with issues of race. Today I want to talk a little bit about hospitality, and then later this afternoon I want to come back and talk about issues of justice. As we get started here today, though, I want you to know that it was not by mistake that I chose this text. As an African-American Baptist preacher raised in a conservative evangelical church, this passage was one that I thought I understood 
the first time I heard it. It was God's judgment on this particular sin among the worst sins, one that God hated. This passage was about God's hatred of sodomy or homosexuality. The details of this passage were clear. Some men show up in Sodom. The men of the city try to have sexual relations with them. God sees this act as evil. God destroys Sodom and kills all of its people. The story seemed simple. You could wrap it up and tie it up with a nice little bow and be done with it. It was about sodomy. And who could say that sodomy wasn't sin once you see what God did in response to it? I held this view for years and at times dug down deeper in my commitment to this particular way of reading this text. Like when AIDS ravaged the gay community in the mid-80s. Clearly this was God's judgment on their acts. Like when one of my best friends, Hunter, confessed to me that he was gay. Surely he was putting himself at odd with God and with God's word. Like when it hit home and it really began to disturb me when at 22 years old my dear friend Hunter died from AIDS. Was this God affirming that homosexual acts merited a death sentence? It wasn't until I was in graduate school and had an encounter with noted biblical scholar Dr. Walter Wink that my dogmatic commitment to this way of reading was seriously challenged. In the space of some 45 minutes, he opened up a new way of reading this troubling passage and slowly this recalcitrant black Baptist preacher began to change. God can change a black Baptist. Anything is possible. (laughs) After Dr. Wink's lecture, I began to spend more time studying this passage, and I began to see more in it than I had imagined. As I looked at it with new eyes, I first began to hate this passage. Then slowly... Steadily, I gained a new appreciation for it. Following Dr. Wink's lead, I started reading with a more careful analytical lens, and I soon was surprised by what I saw in this passage. I noticed things like, when I read this passage in relationship to Genesis 18 and the chapter that immediately preceded it, I saw the way that Abraham related to these three men who had come to him. He did not just walk out to them. He ran to them. He bowed himself to the ground before them. He begged them to come into his home. He made a meal for them. He killed his fatted cow. He begged that they would be refreshed in his presence. He showed what hospitality looks like. Then I went back and read Genesis 19 again, and I saw that Lot pretty much does the exact same thing that Uncle Abraham did. When the two men come to the city of Sodom, he begs them to come in. He promises to take care of them. He welcomes them under the shelter of his roof. 
Later on in chapter 19, the men of the city come to know the two men who have come to the town. Now, know, you know, is a euphemism for sex. So this is the association of this passage with quote-unquote homosexual acts, but if we're careful to note the action that they seek to engage in are not consensual or loving acts, they are acts of abuse, the kind of things that take place in war zones, the kinds of things that take place in prisons, the kinds of things that no one should ever have to suffer. In conjunction with chapter 18, it becomes clear that what we're lifting up here in this passage is not a decrial of homosexuality, but a decrial of the kind of abuse of people who are vulnerable to us. You realize that in the biblical world, if you went from one city to another, there's no Holiday Inn. There's no IHOP. There's no uh, place that you can find to lodge yourself. You are at the mercy of the people in that town. Whether you lived or died depend on whether they welcomed you in, whether they cared for you, whether or not they went out of their way. I've seen this kind of affection before when I've been in the Middle East. I've seen how I've been welcomed into stores by merchants who say that you are my first guest of the day. I want to make sure that I take care of you. And they close the store down. They sit you down. They'll make a tea for you. They'll ask you questions about yourself. They'll do whatever they can to make you feel at home. This is an expression of that same sense of hospitality that Abraham shows. So I go back to read this story again, and I say, if it's not about homosexuality, why was this city destroyed? And I look for another story, and another interbiblical passage that is a, of a similar type, a similar form, and I come across Judges chapter 19. Here we have the story of a Levite and his concubine who come to the city of Gebeah, and they seek to find a place to stay. And as they stay here, the people of the city come there and beat against the door and try to get the Levite to come out that they might know him as well. But that story has a different ending. In that story, the Levite sends his concubine out, his secondary wife. She is abused by the men of that city throughout the night. In the morning, he wakes up and she's next to dead. He takes her home, and when he gets home, he divides her body up, ships her off to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the city of Gebeah is destroyed. The city of Gebeah is destroyed not because of homosexuality. It's destroyed because of the abuse of the vulnerable that we see here. Maybe I got this passage wrong. Finally, if we read this passage interbiblically, there are other places that talk about Sodom and what took place in Sodom. One of the most significant passages, I think, is one that occurs in the book of Ezekiel. How many times have you read that book? 
chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, where it reads as follows. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Here we see that an interbiblical interpretation of the story of Sodom, listening to what the people that were in the Bible thought about the story themselves, shows that the focus was not on homosexuality at all. It did not even mention rape in explicit terms. What he does denote is that the people were proud and opulent and prosperous, but did not help the vulnerable people who came to them with less. Getting a little hot under the collar in here. This was the sin of Sodom, he boldly proclaims. The later phrase about them being haughty and doing abominable things probably relates to the fact that these people ignored the suffering of the poor who were just outside of their reach. They ignored the suffering of the poor who they could have intervened in because of their ample wealth. They ignored the suffering of the poor. And for this, Sodom was destroyed. This is similar to the way that Isaiah reads Sodom. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, Woe to you, people of Sodom. And then goes on to talk about doing justice in verse 17. This is the way that Jesus reads the people of Sodom and the sin of Sodom when he talks about sending his disciples to different cities. And if the people don't welcome them, it will be to them like Sodom. It's even the way that Jewish Roman historian Josephus understood the sin of sodomy. In his history, he records, about this time the sodomites grew proud and on account of their riches and great wealth, they became unjust towards men and impious towards God. Inasmuch that they did not call to mind the advantages that they received from him. They hated the strangers, Josephus goes on to say, You see, if we look at the text, we have read this text wrong. If we lift up a particular group of people that we want to tear down and we've missed the point of this larger passage. The sin of sodomy is living in opulence affluenza, having prosperous ease, ignoring the poor, the vulnerable, the least, the lost, the otherwise left out, those who often are in front of our eyes, but whose plight we ignore. I'm so glad we don't live in a nation like this today. In essence, I want to suggest here that Genesis 19 is a passage that shows you both what hospitality looks like and what its opposite is. It is expressed in a willingness to abuse the vulnerable. Though we have traditionally focused on the sexual dimension of this narrative, the sin of Sodom uh, really is 
a sin of people of means, ignoring those who are doing without. The sin of Sodom is something that might not be as far from all of us as we might like to think. Might actually be going on today. In this regard, I might want to suggest that we still need to think of sodomy as a sin that really needs to be avoided, a sin that should be decried, a sin that we should seek to overcome. I think that the sin of sodomy might be a reason for nations to be destroyed today, a reason for God to step in and intervene, a reason for us as Christians to stand up and make a bold witness against it. The sin of sodomy may well be expressed in the personal actions and attitudes of good Christian folk who see those who are suffering around them and walk past the woman who's trying to find food for her baby and step over that disabled veteran who has given up a leg and part of his life for our freedom as though we didn't see him and walk past those countless people who are huddled around without a place to live in one of the wealthier portions of this world as though there was nothing we could do about it. I'm sure the personal implications for the way that the sin of sodomy is manifest even today but I don't think it's just a personal issue. The sin of Sodom may well be expressed also in the political choices that we make. How we choose to treat people who have less, so the personal hospitality that we fear to show to people might be even trumped by the collective ways that we ignore people who suffer. The way that we go to the voting booths and vote for people and policies that will disenfranchise young children from underprivileged families who need a pre-kindergarten education. The way that we allow people who come across the border fleeing from policies that our nation has played a significant role in and fail to offer them a legitimate welcome. Worse, the way that we allow these people to come in and then take their children from them with no system of figuring out how to return their children to them in the end. The sin of Sodom might be the way that we treat disaffected black and brown peoples who we force to live in communities where they'll be underserved, overlooked, and ignored as they languish in poverty. Perhaps this is what the sin of Sodom looks like today. Responding to the needs of the neediest among people was a call for biblical hospitality in the time of Abraham, and perhaps no less than that today, we are called to express this notion of hospitality to those in our midst. 
one more thing on homosexuality. Once I started reading this passage in a different way, I had to go back and think about the way that I read it in relationship to homosexual acts, and it dawned on me. Though we have traditionally understood sodomy to be homosexual acts, in light of this conversation, perhaps sodomy is the way that we have treated the LGBTQ community, a vulnerable group whom we have victimized. Perhaps we straight people have been the sodomites all along and have been using them to belittle, denigrate, humiliate, and second-rate our gay brothers and sisters, our lesbian and trans and bi and questioning communities. Perhaps by using Scripture as a weapon against the LGBTQ community, dehumanizing them and making them feel as though they are not equal children of God, we have become the sodomites. Maybe this is what God wants us to get out of this passage, that we have become the ones who are guilty of the crime that we have so often decried. As I look at this passage, I wonder if there might be something intentional about the way that we've used this passage against the LGBTQ community. Could it be that the men, and realize I really mean men, responsible for this way of reading were heterosexual and influenced by an inherent bias against those of a different sexual orientation? Could it be that we, noting the hatred God has for the sin of Sodom, read the passage in a way that would not condemn us, but condemn others. I wonder if it might be a common practice to try to imagine the things that God hates the most as things that we could never do. That's nothing I could do. So we use a hermeneutic that twists the text and turns it against someone else. What I do can't be what God hates the most. It's got to be used against someone else. God can't hate things that I do. It must be something that someone else has done. Have we used the text to our own advantage and therefore missed a message that God might be saying to us from your position of privilege, your position of power, you are held responsible. No. I know this doesn't sound like a whole lot of good news. But before I finish, I do want to mention one more point from this passage. We should note that both Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 are interesting because of who the guests are that come to meet Abraham and come to meet Lot. In Genesis 18, the guests are God and two angels. In Genesis 19, it's two angels that come into town. If we look at the story in Judges chapter 19, the guests that come to town are a Levite and his concubine, a priestly figure who represents God. You see what I'm saying here? 
that we need to begin to recognize that these stories are predicated upon the fact that the guest who's coming, the guest who's vulnerable, the guest who might be in need of hospitality is often imagined to be God or a representative of God. I wonder if perhaps when we encountered people who are vulnerable, we imagined that <clears throat> they might be God. We might treat them differently. I wonder if when we think about the social policies that we support, the things for which we vote, we imagine the recipients of the actions for which we vote as if they were God. We might vote differently. I imagine if we thought about the way that our nation develops policies that provide benefit for some and impinge upon the rights of others, we might develop policies differently. I wonder if we thought about those people who are impacted by our decision to choose to help or our decision to refuse to help as representatives of God. It might shape the way that we treat them anew. Jesus, in the story in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, the judgment of the nations, makes that bold claim that always resonates the way that you treat the least of these, hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, incarcerated people. The least of these, those we don't think about as important, those that we don't tend to gravitate toward, those we may not like, the least of these is the way that you are treating God, God's self. Hebrews chapter 13, 2 declares, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. I wonder if we begin to reimagine who the people who might be in need are around us in light of the fact that they might be expressions of God. It would change the way we relate to others in this world. I was at a conference maybe about seven, eight years ago with the International Conference of Community Churches doing a lecture on the image of Jesus and ran across an old country preacher from Illinois. This old country preacher was kind of a different kind of fella. His name was Reverend Barnes, and he believed that God actually talked to him in his ear. And he said that uh, he gets messages directly from God. God told him, uh, Reverend Barnes, what is it, whatever it is that you want, you just let me know and I'll give it to you. Reverend Barnes said, well, I don't know what I need. He said, uh, what do you want, Reverend Barnes? He said, well, we need money for a new church. He said, how much do you need? Uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a million dollars. Okay. Uh, so Reverend Barnes said that next day he got a phone call from one of his members and said, Reverend Barnes, I'm sorry to have to say this to you, but um, would you be willing to accept a tithe on a lottery offering, a lottery winning? And he said, uh, yeah, how much? He said, well, I just hit the lottery for $10 million, so it would be about a million dollars. 
said, God, you actually were doing it. And so I know that sounds like a silly story, right? But uh, I talked to people who were sitting around, and they were like, uh, Rev. Barnes is a poor country uh, preacher. I don't know how he got the money to build that beautiful brand new church he has. Maybe something to the story. Rev. Barnes said that uh, his son was sick, and God came and cured him when the doctor said he was going to die, that he would drive his truck around town sometimes, and the angel of the Lord would sit next to him, and his truck would tip over sideways. Interesting fellow, this Rev. Barnes. But what Reverend Barnes said to me was that God told me I only have one message to preach from here on out. He said, what's that? He said, "Uh, I have to tell everybody that I meet that they are children of God made in God's image. He said, the first time I heard that, I said to God, God, how can I do that? He says, what do you mean? He says, "I, I, I, I preach to people who are prostitutes, who sell their bodies. Some people who are pimps, i.e., they sell other people's bodies to sustain their own lives. I preach to drug dealers, people who abuse the community in which we live for their own personal profit. How can I tell them that they're children of God made in God's image? So God said to him, well, maybe they do these things because they've forgotten who they are. Maybe they do these things because they've forgotten who they are. Maybe we allow people to suffer in this world because we've forgotten who they are. Biblical hospitality calls us to reimagine our relationship with others in this world and to look at them in such a way that we just might peek behind the veil in someone that is different from us, and someone that is unlike us racially, who speaks a different language, who calls God by a different name, who practices different customs, who we may not like, we may find offensive, we might peek behind the veil and recognize that in this strange person that does not conform uh, conform to our expectations, we might peek behind the veil that hides the very face of God. Amen. Amen. Let us look to the Lord. Lord God Almighty, you are gracious and merciful. You are hospitable to us beyond the ways that we have practiced hospitality to others. You welcome us all as Gentiles and strangers and aliens, as vulnerable people who come to you in need of so much and offer us your generous welcome at a table that was not originally ours. You have brought us in as grafted-in shoots on a rich root that is not our own, You've made space for us at your table. Use us, Lord. Help us, Lord, that we might see your very face in those who are in need around us. Help us, Lord, that we might recognize that you are indelibly pressed on each and every human being. Help us treat the other in our midst, 
as though we were treating you yourself that God's kingdom might come and God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.